Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Millions of images flood our screens every day. So it's saying something when one photo grabs everyone's attention. In summer 2016, it was a shot of Omran Daknish, a five-year-old refugee from the Syrian city of Aleppo, where war had sent millions fleeing for their lives. Omran was injured in an airstrike, and in the photo, he's sitting in an ambulance, bleeding and covered in dust, with the look of shock on his face to be heartbreaking on a grown soldier. He's so little, his feet barely reached the edge of the seat. Half a world away, in Scarsdale, New York, a six-year-old kid named Alex saw that photo and decided to write a letter to President Obama. A month later, at a United Nations summit that the United States organized to secure more help for refugees, I watched Obama read Alex's letter aloud. He said he wanted Omran to come live with him and his family. Since he won't bring toys, Alex wrote, I will share my bike and I will teach him how to ride it. I will teach him addition and subtraction. My little sister will be collecting butterflies and fireflies for him. We can all play together. We will give him a family, and he will be our brother. Those are the words of a six-year-old boy. He teaches us a lot. The year Obama gave that speech, his administration welcomed nearly 100,000 refugees to America. But at around the same time, Donald Trump was advocating a different approach. On the campaign trail, he promised what he called, quote, extreme vetting procedures of all immigrants and something more extreme for refugees. I'm putting the people on notice that are coming here from Syria as part of this mass migration, that if I win, they're going back. They're going back. I'm telling you, they're going back. Two months later, Trump won the election. And I wondered what Alex in Scarsdale was thinking, knowing that Omran Daknish probably wouldn't be coming over to play anytime soon. I'm Ben Rhodes, and welcome back to Missing America, a look at the viruses sweeping across the world in the absence of American leadership. This week, xenophobia, fear of outsiders. It's been around since humans formed into tribes, But since the middle of the last decade, when a wave of people from the Middle East fled to the West to escape war, far-right politicians have leapt at the chance to turn it to their political advantage. We'll hear the story of how that refugee crisis unfolded. People were coming because they were hoping that their human rights, their desire to rebuild their lives would be respected by the European nation states. And that was completely wrong. We'll also learn why it still has such an outsized effect on world politics. Then I'll talk to progressives here and abroad, some of them refugees themselves. We'll tell us how the United States can stop fueling xenophobia and start bringing the world together. 
on this episode of Missing America. Missing America is brought to you by Blinkist. Let me tell you about a secret weapon for learning new things and getting ahead. Blinkist is really unique. It works on your phone, your tablet, your web browser. Blinkist takes the best key takeaways, the need to know information from thousands of nonfiction books and condenses them down into just 15 minutes that you can read or listen to. Blinkist has the latest titles from bestsellers, as well as the classic nonfiction titles you always meant to read, but never had time to. I like Blinkist because in just 15 minutes, I can get smarter. I can find lessons that I can apply to my life, or I can figure out whether I want to go on and read an entire book. I use Blinkist when I'm driving in my car. I can use it when I'm making breakfast. I can use it when I'm just taking a walk. If you look at their titles, you can find plenty of popular books that maybe you want to check out, like Sea Stories, My Life in Special Operations by Bill McRaven, the guy who helped build American Special Forces and led the effort to get Osama bin Laden. Or if you're worried about the election, you want to get smarter about that, Untrumping America by Dan Pfeiffer, co-host of Pod Save America, chock full of lessons about what Democrats need to do to still down for you for an election season. With Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed nonfiction books. All the books you want and all for one low price. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com missing. Try it free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com missing to start your free seven-day trial. And you'll also save 25% off, but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com slash missing. Missing America is brought to you by Preemptive Love. America may have shut its doors to refugees, but there's still a way for you to support them. If you listen to this podcast, you know refugees are not a burden or a threat. You know the enormous contribution they make. You know they're worth investing in, and no one does that like Preemptive Love. Preemptive Love is a community of peacemakers who've been showing up on the front lines of conflict for over a decade. They help refugees and families fleeing war to survive and build back better. They're creating thousands of jobs for refugees and asylum seekers in America and around the world. They're helping refugees successfully launch businesses, they're revolutionizing the way refugees work through a digital mobile job platform, providing income for those on the run using just a smartphone. If you want to help create jobs for refugees, Go to loveanyway.com slash missing and donate now. When you do, you'll get a free guide to how we can make this world safer for refugees and how we can reduce the risk of war for all of us. Again, that's loveanyway.com slash missing. Make your first gift today and support refugees. Zarlash Halamzai runs an NGO in Greece called the Refugee Trauma Initiative. It provides mental health experts to help refugees deal emotionally with being stateless, without a home. Zarlash can relate. Her family fled Afghanistan in the late 90s during the country's civil war. People started fighting from street to street and as the militias moved into Kabul. And the interim government just kind of collapsed and they started fighting each other. And so my parents took the very, very, very difficult decision to leave. A difficult decision that more and more families have to make. For years, Zarlesh has watched refugee populations rise around the world, including Iraqis and Afghans, 
displaced by the wars we fought there. But the tipping point was Syria. The battle is raging. Free Syrian forces have detonated a bomb below the rooftop position where government snipers are trapped. Casualties are mounting. Syria's civil war began in 2011. Bashar al-Assad bombarded his people. Then ISIS took root in the country. By 2015, an estimated 4 million Syrians had fled the violence. Syria's population has dwindled since the uprising against the Assad regime began more than four years ago. There is a humanitarian crisis playing out in the Middle East in countries where millions of Syrians have sought shelter from the fighting. Another four so many people at the same time. The conflict in Syria accelerated at a pace which took Afghanistan years to get to. So Afghans were leaving, have been leaving, over a period of 40 years. And that's, that's a very different experience to Syrians who you know, literally were displaced in a space of two years. The UN oversees a set of international rules dating back to 1951, which define who qualifies as a refugee and how nations are supposed to support them. Some give refugees temporary shelter in camps. Some provide a permanent home. And some help fund the whole system. But even before the Syrian crisis, the system was overwhelmed. The international aid community, the whole paradigm of aid is not equipped to deal with what's happening in the world right now. It's designed for short-term emergency responses. And all these different countries have been in chronic conflict for decades. So the aid industry is just not able to deal with uh, chronic protracted crises. Then millions of Syrians flooded into the mix. And people in the West... We're about to fully understand just how overloaded the system was, especially the people of Europe. Zarlash says for many fleeing Syrians, Europe wasn't the intended destination. First, they migrated to neighboring states, Lebanon, Jordan, and especially Turkey. Many were hoping that their stay in Turkey would be a short-term thing and that there would be a resolution to the conflict and that they would be able to go back. In fact, millions of Syrians are still in Turkey today, waiting for peace so they can go home. But as refugee camps became crowded and the war dragged on, millions more felt they had to move on. I think the people that eventually left Turkey came because the response was so terrible to refugees. Refugees experience a huge amount of racism in every country that they go to. So they weren't getting their basic needs met. They were being deported. There's just a whole lot of brutalization that was happening in the neighboring countries. And so those who could started to make their way to Europe. And not just because Europe was nearby. The Europeans or, you know, the West, although I I find the term problematic, sells a message to the world, you know, and that message is that we are pro-human rights, we are pro-protection of vulnerable groups, we are where the international institutions that meant to provide that protection, that's who we support, and that's intentionally sold to millions of people around the world. And so people were coming because they were hoping that their human rights, their safety, their desire to rebuild their lives would be respected by the European nation states. And that was completely wrong. Europe had spent the preceding years dealing with the fallout from the 2008 financial crisis, not getting ready for a migrant crisis. 
When Syrians started coming ashore, the region just wasn't prepared. So in arriving in Greece, no one was responding to what was happening. The vast majority of the responders were civilian volunteers that were going to beaches to greet refugees, to give them clothes, to give them water. It wasn't the European Union or the UN. You know, that happened later on when the crisis climaxed. But Europe's new wave of hard-right politicians? They'd been preparing for this moment for years. These are leaders you'll remember from our episode about far-right nationalists. In Hungary, Viktor Orban had long been demonizing immigrants. Now, he used the migrants to play up fears of some kind of Muslim invasion. He had an electrified razor-wire border fence built and recruited an army of, quote, border hunters to patrol it. The number of abused refugees pushed out of Hungary has been rising for months, say human rights organizations. The Hungarian police forced us to lay face down on the ground. Then they started hitting us with canes and truncheons. Then they set their dogs on us. Meanwhile, in England, Nigel Farage and Boris Johnson were ginning up anti-immigrant sentiment of their own as the country prepared to vote on Brexit. News reports of foreign hordes coming to overwhelm the UK played right into their narrative. People from Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, Syria and Africa are all in the city. Britain remains the dream destination for many migrants, seen as a land of opportunity where they can... Zarlash witnessed the fallout from that in the French border town of Calais. For many refugees, it was the last stop before their final destination, Britain. People in Calais were coming to the UK because they had family in the UK, so they had a very legitimate legal reason for reunification with their family, except that the UK government wasn't allowing them to do that. And so refugees were trying to jump onto these lorries or the cars that were crossing to try and get to the other side. And they had been a makeshift camp in Calais for years, but in 2015 the numbers really spiked. So at one point, if I'm not mistaken, there was something like 10,000 people stuck in a tiny, tiny camp. And they called it the jungle because it was this horrific place. And the only difference, you know, between Turkey and France was that in Turkey, people still believed this idea that there would be some protection for them somewhere else. In Calais, they had completely given up on that. But there was one country and one leader holding out some hope. A million refugees arrived in Germany in 2015, with the peak migration being reached in September, when Chancellor Merkel decided to open the frontiers. Angela Merkel flung open Germany's borders to Syrian refugees, offering a permanent home. Do you want the discussions on, do you build more tents or build more schools? And what Germany's talking about is building more schools to have a longer-term integration process. Long-term integration. Merkel was among the few European leaders thinking of Syria's migrants this way. And Zarlash says it wasn't just out of the kindness of her heart. I think she didn't just make a humane decision. She made a smart decision. You know, there was a rationale behind why she allowed so many people to come into Germany. And it wasn't just altruistic. All the data and the evidence shows immigrants are good for countries. You know, they start businesses, they work really hard, they do jobs that the natives don't want to do. There's a whole bunch of benefits that immigrants and refugees bring. So I think that was definitely part of it. 
Germany has a an aging population like the UK. They need a young, productive, motivated workforce that's been educated in another country. You know, so the Syrian government essentially has paid for these people to have those skills, and the German government can now reap the rewards. You know, that's a very good decision for Germany. Practically, yes, it was, but politically, it turned out not so much. At least in the short term. Twelve people were wounded in a suicide bomb attack in the foyer of a concert hall in Ansbach on July the 24th. It happened when a 27-year-old Syrian detonated a bomb in his backpack. Merkel was already getting grief for her migrant policy when her country was rocked by a terror attack, hot on the heels of others in France. Dozens of people were killed in France Thursday night in what's being investigated as a terror attack. A truck plowed through a crowd celebrating Bastille Day in the French resort town of Nice. Some of these attacks were by asylum seekers. Some weren't. A homegrown network of extremists was identified based in France and Belgium. where terror But the public was hardly paying attention to the details. It played right into the hands of fear mongers. Across the continent, progressives were on the defensive. Merkel's political standing plummeted, and with it, the whole idea of compassion towards refugees. That's when Obama made the decision to show refugees some compassion of our own. Like Merkel's migrant policy, it wasn't a purely altruistic move. Angela Merkel was Obama's closest friend among world leaders, and an island of competence and stability amidst a rising tide of extremism. She needed America's support. But more importantly, Obama knew what Zarlash said is true. The West had sent a message. It had set itself up as a home for the vulnerable. If we turned our backs on the biggest wave of tired, poor, huddled masses in decades, we'd be giving up any moral authority we had. Obama decided to take in more refugees and to take the political flack from Republicans along with it. We cannot conduct effective, reliable background checks. And if you admit a 10,000 people and 9,999 of them are good people and one of them is an ISIS killer, you have a problem. We just have to make sure that we're not inviting people in here who pose a threat to us, who come in under the cover of a refugee status, whose view it is to come in here and destroy us. That is not unreasonable for America to say no. At one point during this period, I remember sitting on Air Force One, listening in on a call between the president and then Speaker of the House Paul Ryan. Ryan was going to move forward with a bill that would suspend all refugee admissions to the U.S. Paul, Obama said, I understand the problems you have in your caucus, but you're speaker now. This isn't something to play politics with. This is about who we are as a country. Ryan toned down the bill, and Obama got his refugees. Last year, the European Union declared the migration crisis over. Nearly 90% fewer asylum seekers crossed the Mediterranean than five years ago, at the height of the wave. But Zarlash says for thousands still in refugee camps, and even for people who are integrated into European life, the scars will last. Ahmed, my friend who is from Kobani, who I met in Calais, he's now in London, he's a programmer. He has his own apartment. He's planning to go to university. He's been reunited with his family. And he's one of the most 
engaged, productive, wonderful people that I know in London right now. So that can be the end story. But the thing that always strikes me when I see him, because he lives with the trauma of having to have risked his life to come to the UK every single day. That's not something that you get over, right? Every night trying to jump on a lorry to try and make it to your sisters. He didn't have to go through that. That is a totally avoidable situation. And the migration crisis has left scars on European politics too. By the narrowest of margins, the UK voted for Brexit. Meanwhile, Viktor Orban was legitimized. When he led the charge to condemn Merkel's migrant policy, many European leaders joined him. It solidified his power and emboldened him. Last year, he started detaining refugees in shipping containers behind barbed wire. As for the U.S., we're feeling the ripple effects too. That conversation between Obama and Paul Ryan in 2015, it ended in a compromise. Yes, Obama got to admit more asylum seekers. Republicans got increased vetting of everyone coming in. But the guy running to replace Obama had a different kind of vetting in mind. I call it extreme, extreme vetting. Our country has enough problems. We don't need more. And these are problems like we've never had before. After the election, Trump began steadily lowering the number of refugees admitted to the U.S. each year. The result? We've gone from taking in over 100,000 refugees a year to just over 10,000. And instead of supporting allies like Merkel and denouncing despots like Orban, who put people in camps, Trump's administration is building camps of its own and filling them with children seeking asylum. Sadly, there are plenty more people he can demonize to stoke up xenophobia in his base. Right now, there are nearly 80 million refugees on the planet looking for a home, the most since World War II. So what can America do now? A problem that massive doesn't get solved by just removing Trump from office. What happens after November? And how do you cure millions of fear? The solutions will come from Washington, our allies, and from each other. I think that if local people have, I don't know, create a business, work together, fall in love, that would actually change the way people perceive migration on the long term. Coming up on Missing America. Stay with us. Missing America is brought to you by Quip. When is the last time you got rewarded for brushing your teeth? With Quip's new smart electric toothbrush, good habits can get you great perks, like free products, gift cards, and more. The Quip smart brush for adults and kids connects to the Quip app with Bluetooth so you can track when and how well you brush. Get tips and coaching to improve your habits. You can also earn more points for daily brushing and bonus points for completing challenges like streaks of good brushing. And you can redeem those points for rewards like free products, gift cards, and discounts from Quip and its partners. Already have a Quip? Well, upgrade it with a smart motor and keep the features you know and love. Sensitive sonic vibrations, two-minute timer with 30-second pulses for a guided clean, Slim, lightweight, and sleek, with no wires or bulky charger to weigh you down. Multi-use travel cover, 
that doubles as a mirror mount for less clutter. Beyond the brush, Quip has everything you need to build a complete routine. Mint or watermelon toothpaste, I'm a mint guy, with anti-cavity ingredients for strong, healthy teeth. Echo-friendly solar battery charger to power your Quip with sunshine. Plus, you can get brush head, toothpaste, and floss refills delivered from $5, and shipping is free. How smart is that? Join over 5 million mouths who use Quip and save hundreds compared to other Bluetooth brushes when you get a Quip smart brush for just $45. Start getting rewards for brushing your teeth today and go to getquip.com missing right now to get your first refill free. That's your first refill free at getquip.com missing spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash missing. Quip, better oral health made simple and rewarding. Missing America is brought to you by Babbel. Learning a language should always be on your to-do list. And there's no better time to start. If you're looking to learn a new language, Babbel can help you become a fluent speaker faster than you think. I know it can be worrying. You try to pick up a language, but it doesn't stick. Well, I decided to give Babbel a try, and now I'm hooked. Babbel makes it fun and easy to start having conversations on Espanol, en Francais, whatever your preferred language. If you want to relearn that language you took in high school or college, but think it'll take too much time, Babbel can help you pick it up fast. I always wanted to learn a new language, but I always felt like there were barriers. Too much time, effort, or money. Babbel gets rid of those roadblocks so you can start speaking a new language sooner than you think. It's proven to get you speaking a language within weeks. Babbel designs their courses with real-world conversations in mind letting you learn everyday practical conversation that you'll actually use. The daily lessons are 10 to 15 minutes and start by teaching you words and phrases. Then, sentences get more complex. Soon, you're practicing short conversations. The lessons are thoughtfully created by over 100 language experts, and their teaching method has been scientifically proven to be effective across multiple studies. They even have speech recognition technology that helps you improve your pronunciation and accent. With Babbel, you can choose from 14 different languages, Spanish, French, Italian, German, and others. And Babbel is available as an app or online, so your progress will be synced across all your devices. Right now, when you purchase a three-month subscription, Babbel will give our listeners three additional months for free with promo code MISSING. That's three additional months free if you go to babbel.com and use promo code MISSING on your three-month subscription. That's B-A-B-B-E-L.com. Promo code MISSING. Missing America is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. If you're an employer, you've got a lot on your plate right now. Running your business, ensuring workplace safety, and much, much more. So leave your hiring to the one place that makes finding qualified candidates fast and easy. ZipRecruiter.com slash missing. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job sites. But they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and actively invites them to apply to your job. ZipRecruiter makes hiring efficient and effective with features like screening questions to filter candidates and an all-in-one dashboard where you can review and rate your candidates. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. And right now, to try ZipRecruiter for free, my listeners can go to ZipRecruiter.com slash missing. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash missing, M-I-S-S-I-N-G. ZipRecruiter.com slash missing. ZipRecruiter, 
the smartest way to hire. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Flashback to 2016, when Angela Merkel seemed politically doomed. The U.S. had backed her up on a refugee policy, but few other countries had. And when Trump won the presidency, she was all alone. She may have been Time's person of 2015, but back home, Angela Merkel is no Miss Popular. In fact, 40% of Germans would like her to resign, a new poll revealed. Why? Because of her welcoming stance for refugees. Even Merkel's fans worried she'd be ousted in Germany, and a broader right-wing wave would sweep in. When I saw the crisis bubbling in 2015-16, my first reaction was real fear that the German move in the absence of wider European support was going to produce a, a backlash. That's David Miliband. He runs the International Rescue Committee, a humanitarian NGO. And he's a former foreign secretary of the UK government. But then the way in which the German authorities went through processing the asylum claims did give me confidence that this would not tip over German politics. Even in small towns in Germany that I visited, um, I was very struck about the systematic way in which the asylum claims were being processed fast, in very strong contrast to the US situation, for example. The way in which the integration was then taken seriously. And then today, five years later, the statistics as well as the stories show a picture of a country which actually came to terms with a very significant flow that on any conventional uh, assumption would have been seen as too many too fast. Don't get me wrong. There has been an enduring political backlash in Germany. Far-right parties have made inroads in the parliament. But at the same time, Germany proved it could be done. You could take in a lot of refugees, fast, integrate them into society, and begin to reap the economic and social benefits that Zarlash talked about, despite many voters' fear of outsiders. So it seems to me the question is, how can America help replicate that success around the world? Miliband says the process has to start at home. I mean, the first and most obvious is to get your own house in order. No one's going to take any lectures or lessons unless the home front is taken care of. And so whether it be the separation of children at the border or leading on refugee resettlement, uh, the U.S. needs to set its own example. Trump has set the worst possible example. He has slashed refugee admissions. He's separated children from their families at the border. And he's actually tried to criminalize the act of seeking asylum in the first place in violation of the rules America has lived with for 70 years. So everybody has a right to try to claim asylum. And despite what the Trump administration says, you don't actually have to come through a legal border to claim asylum. That's Sarah Margon. When I spoke to her, she ran the Washington Office for Human Rights Watch. Now, she's at the Open Society Foundations. They're trying to undermine what has been longstanding asylum policy in terms of the interviews and in terms of the assessment, and then to criminalize them if they enter the country and detain them. You know, separating them from their kids is horrific. But in general, the detention of people trying to claim asylum is insane. They're not criminals for trying to do that, but they have been turned into criminals by the administration. So the first step is simple. Be a nation that honors its moral and legal obligations. Recognize that people fleeing persecution shouldn't be treated like criminals. That'll happen if we get rid of Trump in November. But the xenophobia 
that helped lead to Trump in the first place won't just disappear with him. How do we take in more refugees and resettle them successfully in America when a big chunk of Americans, on some level, are motivated to shout this? Build that wall. 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 First of all, we should understand and respect the fact that some people are afraid. Sami Mahdi is a member of the Belgian parliament and a child of refugees. And that's the first step that we often do not make. We're not listening to them. We're sometimes even laughing at them, ridiculizing them, telling them they maybe have another skin color, but they're people like you and me. It's true. But still, people feel afraid. And how do you ease their fears? For me, it's really easy. Numbers. Talking about numbers. Whenever I go to a workshop or give a speech somewhere, and I'm talking to people who are afraid of migration, I'm always asking them, how many migrants entered the country this year? How many? Do you know? None of them. None of them knows how many. And that's the biggest issue. If you don't know how many people are entering your country, and you get fake news everywhere on social media, you have the feeling that your country is getting overwhelmed. In Belgium, for instance, we get 7% Muslim population. We, we had a survey in Belgium asking people, how, what's the percentage of Muslim you think there is in Belgium? People in Belgium thought we were 30 or 40%. We have the biggest gap between reality and beliefs in Belgium. If we can close that gap, it might alleviate one of the main fears people have about refugees, that they're coming to take our jobs. In fact, refugees don't arrive in enough numbers to dent a country's job market. What's more, most aren't coming to find work. They're coming because they fear for their lives. But there's another fear in society, that refugees could be terrorists. That's almost never the case. But that doesn't stop fear-mongering politicians and sensationalist media from hyping the danger. When I spoke to Marianne Hassan, she was Somalia's chief negotiator for the WTO. I have in no way, shape or form had to go through the trauma of what Somali people and others had gone through in the 1990s. And for someone to leave their home, you know, I think it speaks for itself. So sometimes looking at the fact that, you know, media can perpetuate this narrative of them being these people who are just coming in and who want to take their jobs and their houses and just thinking about it from a humanity's perspective, like this is a woman who would risk her life to go on a boat with a baby, for example. And would you do that? Unless it was like complete dire straits and you had absolutely no choice. But even if we recognize these realities, that people have legitimate reasons to flee their homes and our countries are in no risk of being overrun by people taking our jobs or committing acts of terrorism, there's often still a fear that goes beyond logic, that refugees represent something different, something dangerous. Tech is playing a huge role yeah, in that. Yeah. That's Alice Barg. She runs Singa, a French NGO that tries to create mutual understanding between refugees and locals in their host countries. When you write migrant or refugees on Google, the algorithm are going to show you pictures of a mass of people in pain, sometimes very violent images, not only sad or create pity, but also people fighting each other sometimes. And these are the biggest perceptions of migration that whole societies would have through the media and through the politics. So that generates even more and more anger. The solution, she says, get locals to encounter refugees in, imagine this, actual real life, 
There's a huge lack of connections between refugees and host societies. There was a study in 2013 saying that only 12% of refugees in France have interactions on a daily basis with French people. And this is what we need to promote. We have data at Singa saying that the more locals a refugee would know, the more, let's say, integrated, yeah. I don't like this word, but yeah. the happier he would be. And on the other hand, the more a local would meet refugees, the less racist he would be. Here's another data point Barb gave me. If a migrant makes friends with 10 locals, that person will be on their way to having a job, learning the local language, and maybe even forming romantic relationships within just nine months. That's stabilizing for society and a cure for fear. So how do we create those 10 bonds? Singa's innovation has been to set up business incubators for migrants, a lot of whom are actually highly skilled workers and entrepreneurs. The idea? To introduce refugees to locals as future collaborators, not just charity cases. It's all based on a concept that Barb heard about from President Obama. What he promotes is a world where we do not look at each other, we see each other. And we look at the, the future as a common thing. And when you put a local and a refugee in the same room, if you get to talk about migration and you have the local saying, OK, I'm going to save you because you're a refugee and you need my help, that will not create a common us. But if you put these two same people in the same room and you talk about global warming or common issues that the whole society is and the whole world is facing, then you get a unity and an alliance and then they will share their insights and maybe collaborate together for the future. Barb says this kind of positive, intimate interaction is what changes hearts and minds. Not just trying to combat online negativity with online positivity. I do not believe in like all the campaigns like hashtag welcome refugees. I mean, it is good and we may need to do that, but I don't think that will change uh, the way people perceive migration. I think that if Local people have, I don't know, yoga, sport, create a business, work together, fall in love. That would actually change the way people perceive migration on the long term. In our current COVID moment, of course, a lot of this close quarters collaboration has to be on hold. But meanwhile, there's plenty of work to be done on the other pieces of the puzzle. Reforming the current international refugee system and turning it into something that actually works. David Miliband. I try to say to people, the choice is not between whether migrants come or not. It's whether they come in an unplanned, undocumented, illegal, dangerous way, or whether they come in an organized, processed, secure, and legal way that recognizes different needs and also recognizes that those fleeing in fear of their lives are in a different position than those who are seeking a better life. America is uniquely positioned to do this. Back in the 1950s, after all, we were a major architect of the current refugee system. And we have a track record of taking in large refugee populations and asylum seekers. So when we do open our doors, we not only set an example for what to do, we can also set an example for how to do it. Look, at the end of the day, given our size and our stature and our power, we are inevitably a model that other countries will follow for good or for ill. And so that is a role we inevitably have to take on. That's Ronnie Newman. He worked on refugee issues on Obama's National Security Council at the height of the crisis. These days, he's political director for the ACLU. 
And so best case scenario is we can figure out the right playbook to run. We can run it aggressively and everybody else just picks up the same playbook and runs it too. Here's an example. When we were trying to figure out how to process Syrian refugees in places like Jordan and Turkey more quickly, in lots of ways, we copied a portion of the Canadians' playbook. They ended up deploying these full-service teams, teams that could do refugee interviews, that could do medical checks, that could do security checks, that could package all of the different elements of the process in sort of one bundle in a way that was, you know, quicker. You cut two months from the process, cut three months from the process. So that, you know, the Canadians did that first. We said, hey, that's a great idea, we'll do it too. But in lots of ways, even when we are effectively copying the models of others, when we lift them up, we shine a bigger, brighter spotlight on them because everybody's paying attention to us in a way that may not be the case with other countries. If America can make these pivots, recognizing refugees' rights, taking in more refugees, and modeling more efficient ways of taking them in, we can build on that foundation around the world, pursuing agreements to get other countries to take in more refugees. And we'll also start enjoying the ultimate cure for xenophobia, seeing refugees themselves demonstrate how much a country has to gain by taking them in. Chris Murphy is a leading progressive voice in the Senate. What we've learned generation after generation is that all immigrants grow this country's economy, but especially refugees. Refugees who are coming here under particularly desperate situations tend to most quickly add enormous economic value to the U.S. economy, maybe because they are just so enormously grateful to have been saved from potential death and destruction by our policy of bringing them here. He's seen this up close in the state he represents. Our Albanian population in Connecticut is not only incredibly economically important, but they're sort of growing into leadership positions in certain communities. Waterbury is the fourth biggest city in Connecticut, and much of its political leadership today is Albanian. Uh, Albanians that came here through the course of the Balkan Wars. That's made the Waterbury community much, much stronger. And that's just you know one example of thousands around the country. Thousands of American communities filled with people were once just distant images of human suffering. Jews fleeing the Holocaust. Vietnamese on boats. The lost boys of Sudan. Ultimately, this is about what kind of country we are. And the most important thing that we can do is what that young boy, Alex, was able to do in his letter. See our common humanity in others, including the nearly 80 million displaced people worldwide. 80 million. It's a staggering number. I asked Zarlash Chalamzai if maybe, paradoxically, it's the almost incomprehensible size of the crisis that leads people to react to it with fear instead of empathy. Like it's some kind of monster and not a collection of people. Absolutely. And I understand that it's difficult, right? That, you know, it's easier to kind of disengage or not talk about it in that way because, you know, individual lives that have been disrupted or ruined or, you know, lives that some may never recover, that's quite a difficult thing to hold. But it's gone so much the other way 
that people, like you said, they don't even think of them as human beings, you know, as with their own kind of destinies and interior lives. And one of the things that I always struggled with when I was growing up and I struggle with in my work now is this idea of who feels pain and whose suffering matters. Yeah. Because... For example, with Afghan people, it just doesn't seem that people care or want to engage with the fact that an Afghan mother who's lost a child will have the same feelings of grief and suffering that someone in America might. There's just this weird kind of discrepancy in how we prioritize people's pain and people's trauma. And so I hope that through our work and through kind of telling the stories of the people that we work with, that we can change that a little bit to say, you know, we feel pain. I mean, it sounds sort of tried, but we bleed in the same way that everybody else does. Next week, our penultimate episode about the ultimate crisis, climate change. And believe it or not, we're going to leave you with some hope about it. Because the thing that threatens the entire world could also bring the entire world together to fight it. The good news is, the really good news is, the renewable energy revolution and the continuing energy efficiency revolution makes this less hard than it looked even five years ago in Paris, let alone 10 years ago when I was enacting these things in Australia. The forces that have derailed climate action in Australia, America, and around the world, and how we, can overcome them on the next Missing America. Missing America is written and hosted by me, Ben Rhodes. It's a production of Crooked Media, The show is produced by Andrea Gardner-Bernstein. Rico Galliano is our story editor. Austin Fisher is our associate producer. Sound design and mixing by Daniel Ramirez. Production support and research from Nimi Ubori and Sidney Rapp. Fact-checking by Justin Klosko. Original music by Marty Fowler. The executive producers are Sarah Geismer, Lyra Smith, and Tanya Sominator. Special thanks to Allison Falzetta, Tommy Vitor, John Lovett, and John Favreau. Thanks for listening. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.